0: Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Muslims in Your Backyard podcast. I'm your host, Haram Shamim. Thank you guys for joining me for another episode and for taking some time out of your day to listen to the podcast. As always, I appreciate the support. For today's episode, I'll be talking about the Hajj. I'll be reflecting on what the Hajj means to us and kind of trying to understand what, what the impact, let's say, that the Hajj can have on our modern life and You know, given a lot of the things that we have in the 21st century, just sort of the way, I guess, our our lives are, where does the Hajj sort of fit into this? And what can we learn about what we actually are doing in the Hajj? Uh, Not that I'm going to go step by step what you do in the Hajj, but just sort of in a broad way, reflecting on what we do in the Hajj. But then also what the Hajj has always meant for for the Muslim ummah in sort of a, a general sense. You know, I, I figured that this was a good episode to do, given that Eid just happened, which by the way, I, I hope everyone had a, a good Eid, or at least uh, as good of an Eid as I guess you can given the circumstances. Uh, I don't know what the situation is depending on what country or area you're listening to this from, but I hope most of you or all of you at least got to have a, a good Eid, um, at least maybe uh, maybe a sort of a resemblance Eid to what we had before Uh, But here in Canada, we luckily were able to get rid of some of uh, the uh, restrictions uh, on kind of gatherings and whatnot. Uh, My area or region where I live, at least, we were able to do an open air prayer. So we just did the congregation outside. Uh, It was a pretty good day. I'm not going to lie. Alhamdulillah, it was a a good, it was pretty warm. Unfortunately, that was the only one drawback. It was really, really warm. Uh, But luckily, it didn't rain or anything. Um, And it was a good day, got to meet some friends. So Alhamdulillah, you know, I I, I will say at least that uh, I I had a a relatively good Eid. But I hope, inshallah, you know, in the future we can all have a better Eid. And, you know, wherever you are listening to this from, hopefully there as well, you you know, we can get through this. And again, inshallah, the next time we have an Eid, there's no more talk about masks or any restrictions or anything of that sort. Because I'm going to be honest with you. If I have to hear another time where, you know, there's a restriction on this amount of people that can be in one spot, I might honestly lose my mind because I'm getting tired of it. I I really am. So, inshallah, again, because I'm really trying to stress this year that we don't have to do this again uh, for another Eid. But, uh, yes, from that Eid, sorry, which is why I wanted to talk about the Hajj. And, you know, Eid, Eid al-Adha itself is sort of a a weird celebration, uh, in my opinion, because... You know, like, we know about, like, Eid where you have Ramzan for a month and then it builds up to it. Eid al-Adha is kind of weird because it just sort of happens and then it goes away. You know, like, like I guess if you're doing Hajj, it's different because you're also building up to it. But if you're not doing on Hajj, like I, I was, and then I think most people, you know, that I knew weren't either. Eid itself, Eid al-Adha, you just sort of have it on any day and then you sort of build up. You do all this preparation and then it's just gone. And then, like, this time around as well, it was really different because it was in the middle of the week. So you kind of just did it, and then you kind of just had to move on to, to going back to, to normal, uh, you know, life right after that. So it's kind of a weird weird holiday, uh, in my opinion. And, then, you know, in general, um, you know, the, the way Eid kind of works, it, it is sort of a, a weird holiday, quote-unquote. You know, every other religion or area, they have an Eid or sorry, they have their holidays, you know, is preset in, in Islam, it's like, you know, when's your holiday going to happen? Oh, oh, I'll tell you the night before. You know, like, I'll tell you when I sight the moon. It's like, what, <laughs> what does that even mean? What? But, but that, that's how it works, right? That's what you have to do when you're telling, you know, your boss or something. When are you going to take the day off? Oh, when I see the moon. It's just so random. But that that's the, you know, the reality that we live in as Muslims. Um, because I guess technically speaking, um, you know, maybe ignoring some of the, the minor holidays we have in Islam. There's only two actual holidays, right? Eid and Eid. There's nothing else. So it's sort of weird that they both sort of happen in a, a weird kind of circumstance. But, but anyways, anyways. Uh, enough the, on that. I, I kind of got off track here. I wanted to talk about the, the Hajj. Right? This episode was, was about the Hajj. And for, for the kind of the first part of this episode, I want to reflect on the Hajj and its comparison to modern life uh, in the sense of, you know, what the Hajj's legacy is to us, and how do we as as ourselves, as as younger Muslims, or just Muslims in the 21st century, how do we kind of put ourselves uh, in the middle of this event that has been going on for, you know, at least in in the Muslim Ummah, it's been going on for about 1,400 years. So where do we fit into this? And then the second part here. I wanted to focus on the Kaaba. I wanted to focus on this just incredible, uh, you know. I, I guess I don't. Know, I don't know what do you want to call it. Building, uh, you know, thing. I don't know what what to call it. It's like a religious site. Like it's it's incredible to just think about the Kaaba, and I think that we should, for a second, just sort of reflect on what the Kaaba actually is and what its origins and meaning is for us. And then the last part, what I'm going to do is I will end the episode by bringing up some stories and some quotes of people who have gone on hutch and some of them uh, will be people uh, or sorry there's only actually two main people that I'm going to quoting from and I'm going to be kind of quoting uh, their interpretation and their uh, sort of reflections on the hutch so I'll get to that later but let's just first talk about you know the reflection on the hutch so what what is its connection to us and and you know some will say that you know, the Hajj is just a pilgrimage. It's just this thing that Muslims go to uh, where they uh, will go from wherever they live all the way to Mecca through a variety of different routes and they'll do pilgrimage, they'll go around the Kaaba and then that's it. And as you can expect, I very much disagree with that interpretation of what the Hajj is. It's definitely not just this thing that we go to Mecca and then we go around the Kaaba and then that's it. You know, I, I think that the Hajj itself has such an interesting legacy that goes behind it. And, you know, during Eid as well, we're often reminded of it, where I, I guarantee you the Imam goes on a story about Ibrahim alayhi salam's commitment to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You know, sometimes I, I got to say with some of these Imams, like you got to be a bit more creative sometimes, you know, like you don't just always have to say Ibrahim alayhi salam's story nonstop. Like, I mean, obviously it's a very important part of the story, or sorry, a very important part of the holiday, uh, but at the same time, you know, there's other lessons than just Ibrahim Alayhi salam behind the Hajj. And, and I think one of them is just kind of putting into context just how many years it's been since Ibrahim Alayhi salam actually lived on the earth. Right. And, and I think that that's something that uh, we should take into context. Right. Now, obviously, we don't know exactly the time period that Ibrahim Alayhi salam lived in in terms of like exact dates. Um, but relatively speaking, you know, it's ex- it's kind of uh, expected that he lived around the time of uh, Babylon. At least that's what I was able to find. I don't know if that's a hundred percent true. I don't know if that's you know hundred percent correct. But from what I could find is that he lived around the time of, of Babylon. And some estimates that I found said that he lived almost about two thousand years before the coming of Isa Salam. And and but why I'm using Isa Salam as sort of a marker is because that's the way that uh, the modern uh, you know, European calendar set up the, you know, AD and then, you know, B, uh, what's it called before death or after death. Cause you know, zero is, is when, you know, I think dies or whatever it is the, the European calendar, however it's set up. Um, so it's about 2000 years, approximately give or take, obviously not uh, definite that he's living. Right. And, and then if you look into the 2000 years before, and then the 2000 years after right, where it's till now, 2021, that's about 4,000 years of legacy, you know, maybe not just for the Hajj itself, but for the the man who, you know, basically sets the, the story into motion that creates the Hajj, the actual events that lead to us wanting to do, or sorry, us being commanded to do the Hajj, you know, the thing that the imams often will remind us about, the things that you know the uh, the people will read about that. they will will you know um, that we honor. It happened almost uh, give or take again, approximately four thousand years ago. Like it's it's just it's amazing to think about the generations of people that have lived and gone since then, and like even within just our ummah, you know, because there there probably have been ummas that came before us, right? Because Ibrahim alayhi son, obviously. He also uh, had, you know, uh, I don't know if he had followers per se, but obviously when they built the Kaaba, there was a community that existed eventually around the Kaaba, right? And they followed the religion, of course, that Ibrahim alayhi salam brought uh, with his son, and and they would have revered the Kaaba as well. Would they have done it similar to how we did it? Did they do it differently? Allah Subhanahu wa Taala knows best about those, uh, you know, communities or ummas that came after uh, Ibrahim alayhi salam. But what we do know is that at least to the point where the Arab pagans lived, they were obviously still pagans and we don't honor them in any sort of way in that sense. But they did revere the Kaaba. The Kaaba was still an important part to their religion. So there had to have been some point where the Arabs, at least the people of Mecca, you know, for generations, they must have still continued to revere the Kaaba. So even after Ibrahim alayhi salam, you know, passes away, you know, his sons pass away you know, the generations come after, they're still revering the Kaaba. They're still following that legacy. And then you come and fast forward to us. It's been 1,400 years, I think like 1,400 something years since, you know, uh, the the Hijra, where, you know, our calendar starts to begin as well. And, you know, all those years, people have been doing, you know, the Kaaba or sorry, the, the Hajj. People have been revering in the same process. And and now you think about all those generations of Muslims. You know, the generations of Muslims who were the direct descendants of the Prophet, and the generations of Muslims who came 300 years after the Prophet. They all did the Hajj as well. And what I'm getting at here is that the Hajj, it's not just a pilgrimage. It's a multi-generational event that's been passed down from generation to generation, where people have come and looked at the Ka'aba in awe. And, and they've been, uh, you know, just amazed and, and just, uh, you know, blown away by what the Ka'aba is. They've done the same things that we do for Hajj. You know, they, they went through, you know, Safa Marwa. They went back and forth. You know, they stoned Shaitan. They, they did all those things. They did, you know, the ritual sacrifice. They took the, the meat from the sacrifice and they fed the poor. For generations, that's been happening. At least the way that we do it for 1,400 whatever years, that's been happening. 1,400 years, people have been fed with the ritual sacrifices that Muslims have given or done. And I think that when we look at that, you know, we should be clear in, in our minds about the legacy of what this event really is. Or actually, I shouldn't even use event. Event is almost disrespectful to call it that. It's not just an event you know, it's, it's a, it's a uh, I don't even know what words you can use to describe the hutch. You know, it, it's incredible to think about all these things that happen, you know, with the hutch that have been happening for years. Sometimes we think of our generation as the one that's doing it, but it's not. The generation that comes after us will do it as well. And the generation that came before did it as well. And I think when you kind of put yourself in the middle of that, right? You kind of think about the 21st century, all these things are happening, but the Hajj doesn't just connect you to the 21st century. It'll be a connection for you to the past and to the future. And I think that that's the way that a lot of previous generations looked at it as well, right? That the Hajj was not just this thing that I'm doing by myself. I'm doing this with all these other people as well. And and I want us to reflect on that. You know, I want us to think about really, you know, what the Hajj is in this 21st century, especially when we look at the struggles that some of the people had in the Hajj before us. Like, go out and actually read about some of the journeys that some people had to go through, right? Like, if you're thinking about it, uh, you know, where we live, at least where I live in Canada, I I can just take a flight right to Saudi Arabia. I don't know if you actually have to go somewhere else. I think you can just go either, actually, I don't know, do you have to go directly to Saudi Arabia or do you have to go because I know there's certain routes that you're supposed to go to Makkah from. Like I think, I think that's the, the kind of the, the start point, like there's a start point of where you go to Makkah from. So I guess you have to start that. But regardless of the fact is, you can just fly to wherever you want to go. You know, you can just go fly and then that's it. And that's so simple. It's just a few days flight and you're done. Think about someone who's in India in the 15th century that has to go on a hutch. What do you think they have to do? Probably either take a boat from India to Saudi Arabia, or they have to go by, I guess, road or by, you know, uh, through land, through Iran, through Iraq, you know, through the Arabian Peninsula, and then to Mecca. They have to go through all that. That's, that's, That's months of journey. Even if you go through sea, think about how dangerous it is to go through sea. You know, think about how many people died probably just going to Hajj. I think it's really... Important to remember that when we're going on Hajj, we have it easy. You know, and, and not everything is simple for us. Obviously, I'm not trying to say that everything is, but really in comparison to previous generations, we have it pretty easy. You know, and I think that when we do go on the Hajj, you know, there's often times where you can kind of complain about certain things where you're like, oh, I don't have this, I don't have that, you know, you, you're kind of you know stuck in the middle of a desert, you don't really have access to maybe uh, you know, the necessities of life that you have now. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's pretty simple for us compared to those who came before. And all those generations of Muslims, they did it. They did it. And they did it under harsher circumstances. So we can do it too. You know, and, and I think a lot of scholars do agree on the fact that for the most part, you should try to do the Hajj uh, as early as possible, or at least what, or as early as it's possible possible, given your circumstances, because it's probably easier to do it when you're younger than doing it when you're older. So, you know, inshallah, for those of us who haven't gone on the Hajj, including myself, that we get that chance and that opportunity to eventually go on the Hajj. Now, I think I covered that topic uh, thoroughly enough, and I kind of covered it more than I intended to, but I wanted to now switch over to the Kaaba this monument that's right in the middle of all this Hajj, the thing that we all revere and we pray towards. You know, how do we view this Kaaba? What do we view of it? And I think what's important to kind of think about is what actually is the Kaaba for us? You know, it was constructed again so many years ago, uh, and yet it still stands. And it stands as this kind of monument to spiritual guidance. You know we, we revere towards this this Kaaba and we pray towards it, and so many people kind of just look at it for uh, that guidance. You know, and, and I think just looking at the Kaaba itself, it's sort of just a, a simplistic design. And I'll get into this later as well, but it's just so simple, and yet, you know, it's it's like perfect. Like it's it's perfectly simple. Like there's nothing too amazing about it in the sense that there's no big tower that goes behind it there's no you know big uh i don't know like golden arch or something like that you'll see this in some like monuments even in the muslim world they have like this big golden thing around it like a you know minaret with like it's made out of gold or it's like massive and it's like reaching the skies there's nothing like that you know there's nothing the kaaba is just this, this thing. It's just a cube, basically. It's made out of what, I, I don't know, made out of like wood, sticks, stone, mud, you know, who knows what it was made out of when it was originally made, right? It probably wasn't made out of uh, many, you know, expensive uh, ingredients. It just made it probably out of what Ibrahim al-Salam could get from what was around him. That's how simple it was made. He was just probably grabbed whatever he could make, whatever he could find, sorry, and then just made it. You know, and you think about modern architecture as well. We have like all these cranes to build these massive towers and whatnot. Ibrahim alayhi did not have a crane. You know, he just had him, his son, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and that was it. Right? He probably maybe, I don't know, maybe he had a ladder, maybe, who knows? But he built it. Right? And and when you actually go to the Kaaba, and for those of us who have actually seen it, I've gone on Umrah before, so I've actually seen the Kaaba. And when you actually do go and look at the Kaaba itself. You're like, wow, like this thing's actually bigger than I thought it was. You know, it's, it's much bigger than you thought it was. And it's, it's just so like, it's mesmerizing to look at, at least in my personal opinion. When I went to Umrah and I looked at Kaaba, like there's something so mesmerizing about it. And I remember it distinctively. I, I believe we went there, I want to say, I think it was at night. And this is like in Saudi Arabia at night. It's clear. There's no clouds in the background. It's just clear. It's dark. You don't see anything but just this black background, the Kaaba. And you're just standing there. And I was just staring at it. And I remember it was just black in the background. And the Kaaba is this thing. All the lights around are just staring right at it. They're all just pictured right at it. You can just see the black background. All the lights are on the Kaaba. And the Kaaba is just there. And it just looks so mesmerizing to, to look at. And, and I know this is going to sound weird. This is going sound really, really weird but when i was like looking at the kaaba it looked and felt to me like something was staring right back at me and and obviously something was not actually staring back at me but it's the mesmerization i think of of the kaaba itself it's such a simple piece of 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 architecture <laughs> again i don't know i don't know how to describe it but it's just it's a cube and it looks so nice it's so appeasing to look at i, I don't know why or <laughs> Or what the reasoning behind it, I'm sure someone could come up with something and say, oh, it's actually because of this. I, I don't care. To me, it's just because it's the Kaaba. And it's it's just so perfectly simple to, to look at. So I I think that at this point, we've covered uh, the Hajj and the Kaaba enough. And, and I hope that you know what I, I discussed allows you guys to sort of reflect on that, uh, on what the Hajj and the Kaaba means. Uh, To you and I hope that you know we can kind of reflect more as kind of modern Muslims, where we get caught up in everything that's going on in the world, to really think about what the Hajj and the Kaaba and you know even Eid's legacy is uh, to us. So now I wanted to shift to the last part of this episode, where I wanted to cover uh, two major stories and sort of one minor story uh, that relates to the Hajj. And why I wanted to do this was because I didn't want to just reflect. Uh, through my own voice, but I wanted to use others uh, as well. And so the first minor story has to deal with a woman uh, named El-Khutluk Khatun. And so it's spelled E-L-Q-U-T-L-U-G-H Khatun. And she is, to kind of, I guess, summarize her life in in a very simple manner, a Mongol princess who went on Hajj. And so to kind of put this in a context... The Mongols, of course, were an army that went right through, you know, most of the world. Obviously, they conquered all of basically, I guess, most of Asia, Central Asia. They ravaged the Middle East. They destroyed Baghdad. Um, they eventually actually were stopped by a dynasty called the Mamluks in Egypt, who gave the Mongols their first recorded loss uh, on the battlefield. So it was actually a very big deal. And you know, at this point, uh, it's the I think it's the 14th century. Uh, and, you know, the Mamluks are essentially the strongest regional empire that exists in the Middle East. And so El khutluk Khatun, uh, I'll just call her um, Khutluk Khatun, uh, she is a Mongol princess who, along with many other Mongols at this point, actually converts to Islam. And the Mongols were usually Buddhists and pagans. But after conquering some of the more Muslim-majority areas, they little by little started to convert to Islam. And it's actually remarkable and amazing to think about. You know, especially Kutluk Khatun herself. You know, she's actually a descendant of Genghis Khan. You know, she and many of her followers were either descendants of Genghis Khan or, you know, people that were related to the people uh, who originally started, you know, the Mongol invasions. And these same people who ravaged the Middle East, who destroyed so many, you know, areas of, of Muslim, uh, I guess, uh, habitat, are now converting to Islam and continuing the legacy of Muslims. It's incredible to think about. You know, just a few generations after Genghis Khan ravages the Middle East, you know, uh, the Mongol invasions destroyed Baghdad, the same people who destroyed the area are now converting to Islam. And, and Al-Khutlu Khatun herself becomes a really big part in all of this because she actually pushes for, or at least allegedly pushes for, a peace agreement between the Mamluks and the Mongols, so that the Mongols and the Muslim Mongols themselves, you know, the, the, those who had at least converted at this point, could go on Hajj. And, and it's incredible to think about, really, like it's incredible to think about that all this warfare is happening. The Mongols, who are basically known for being these just, just destroyers of, I don't know, what everything essentially... They they would annihilate countless groups of people and empires are now wanting to go to peace because they want to go on hajj so badly. That's that's essentially what the hajj is at this point for them. You know, they, they are still allowed to go on hajj. Like the Mamluks were not gonna stop them, but they wanted to make it easier. And so they wanted to go on a Hudj. And so they went for peace because of the Hajj. And I think that is incredible. And, and you know, it, it, there's a lot more to the story. And I encourage you guys to go look up El uh, kutluk Khatun's uh, story. And I'm probably mispronouncing her name. Uh, so, again, it's spelled E-L-Q-U-T-L-U-G-H and then Khatun. Um, but you could probably just search up Mongol princess who went on Hajj and you'd find her. But it's just incredible that all this warfare is happening and it just ends because people wanted to go on the Hajj and that you know that's one of the things that I'm talking about the 1400 years of muslim legacy to the Hajj that's one of it that's that's one of the the legacy that comes from it. it is that right there the peace that came because of the Hajj so that's the first minor story now i wanted to switch to the first story that i wanted to cover so the first one that i wanted to focus on comes from uh, the 20th century and it comes From a man named muhammad asad and muhammad asad uh, lived from 1900 to 1992 and was actually born as an austrian into an austrian jewish family and originally went by the name of leopold weiss so he's actually a convert uh, who converted to islam at the age of 26 while he was working as a journalist in, in the middle east and he was a very gifted writer so he wrote a book that was called the road to mecca that was first published in 1952. It's a well-known book. I myself have not read it, but I've heard some very, very good things uh, about it. And so I got some quotes from the book uh, that really, in my opinion, describe very powerfully not only the Kaaba, but also, again, the, the legacy of the Hajj. And so, again, I wanted to use someone else's voice to sort of reflect on the Hajj. And so he describes the Kaaba, and I quote, as, There it stood almost a perfect cube, entirely covered with black brocade, a quiet island in the middle of the vast quadrangle of the mosque, much quieter than any other work of architecture anywhere in the world. It would almost appear that he who first built the Kaaba, for since the time of Ibrahim the original structure has been rebuilt several times in the same shape, wanted to create a parable of man's humility before God. The builder knew that no beauty of architectural rhythm and no perfection of line, however great, could ever do justice to the idea of God. And so he confined himself to the simplest three-dimensional form imaginable, a cube of stone. quite a powerful quote. And And I wanted to also touch on his next quote, where he says, All these architectural wonders I had seen, because again he was a journalist so he'd gone to many different regions of the world, but never had I felt so strongly as now, before the Kaaba, that the hand of the builder had come so close to his religious conception, in the utter simplicity of a cube, in the complete renunciation of all beauty of line and form, spoke this thought." Whatever beauty man may be able to create with his hands, it will be only conceit to deem it worthy of God. Therefore, the simplest that man can conceive is the greatest that he can do to express the glory of God. A similar feeling may have been responsible for the mathematical simplicity of the Egyptian pyramids, although there, man's conceit had at least found a vent in the tremendous dimensions he gave to his buildings. He's referring to the fact that the pyramids try to reach, quote unquote, to the sky. But there, in the Kaaba, even the size spoke of human renunciation and self surrender. And the proud modesty of this little structure had no comparable on earth. So, those two quotes, in my opinion, were quite powerful and they reinforce the kind of simplicity and the humility that i think the kaaba really shows us and and you know comparable to so many other architectures like he talks about you know the pyramids around the world there's really nothing as as simple and as as beautiful as the kaaba and and he also has one quote uh, about the black stone and and he talks about you know the, the black stone and, and its history and and he says i quote the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam was well aware that all the latter generations of the faithful would always follow his example. And when he kissed the stone, he knew that on it the lips of future pilgrims would forever meet the memory of his lips in the symbolic embrace he thus offered, beyond time and beyond death to his entire community. So there he's referring to the legacy of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu And he really connects himself again, like I talked about, kind of putting yourself, not just me, myself in this time, but putting yourself in the previous generation and the generations that came after you. And, you know, again, it's a really good reflection on the black stone is that it's, again, one of those things that all of us do. We go and kiss the black stone. And it's it is kind of very... Uh, I think maybe humbling to think that you are kissing the same stone that the Prophet Muhammad wasallam also kissed. I don't think there's many other things left in the world that you can say that. You really can't. Everything else is probably gone. But that stone is still there. That stone, the Prophet wasallam kissed that, and you can kiss that too. From Muhammad Asad, I wanted to shift to the second story. And the second story that I wanted to focus on was much more contemporary and modern, and it's on the story of Malcolm X. And so most of you probably know about Malcolm X. Uh, I assume you do, at least. If you don't, he was a civil rights leader uh, in the American uh, civil rights movement uh, during the 1960s. He was very well-known, and he was a, a well-known convert to Islam as well. And so um, I'm not going to go through his own story that where he converts to Islam, um, but essentially he, uh, he converts... To Sunni Islam, and then soon after, or I don't know if it's during the same time that he converts, he goes on Hajj. Now, why I wanted to focus on Malcolm X's story about Hajj is because his his story when going on Hajj, in my opinion, is one of the most unique and sort of powerful ones uh, that I've ever read. And I really do love reading a story about the Hajj because it's not just important in his own life's context, but it's incredible to think about sort of the impact that Islam had on him. Before I get right into the quote, I wanted us to just take into context who Malcolm X is as a civil rights leader. He's grown up in an America that is segregated, where whites are considered more superior to blacks and all other colored people, where essentially white people were given every right that they could get that essentially black people and most colored people were denied. And this is really important. Because that's the only world that Malcolm X is known. The only world he's ever known is being told that he is lesser than a white person. But then he goes on hutch, and he writes back to his followers in Harlem about what he's experienced. And he says, and I quote, Never have I witnessed such sincere hospitality and overwhelming spirit of true brotherhood, As is practiced by people of all colors and races here in this ancient Holy Land, the home of Abraham, Muhammad, and all other prophets of the Holy Scriptures. Peace and blessings be upon all of them. For the past week, I have been utterly speechless and spellbound by the graciousness I see displayed all around me by people of all colors. There are tens of thousands of pilgrims from all over the world They were of all colors, from blue-eyed blondes to black-skinned Africans. But we were all participating in the same ritual, displaying a spirit of unity and brotherhood that my experiences in America had led me to believe never could exist between the white and non-white. America needs to understand Islam, because this is the one religion that erases from its society the race problem. Throughout my travels in the Muslim world, I have met, talked to, and even eaten with people who in America would have been considered white. But the white attitude was removed from their minds by the religion of Islam. I have never seen sincere and true brotherhood practiced by all colors together, irrespective of their color." Now. Again, taking into the fact that his whole life, all he's ever known is that he was lesser than white people because he was black. And then he comes to the Hajj, and in the middle of this Hajj, he sees that for the first time in his life, he's not lesser than someone who's lighter skinned than him. He's not lesser than a white person. For the first time in his life, that's happening. Can you imagine the feeling he must have been going through? For the first time, he's not lesser than someone. That's a legacy of the Hajj. That in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we're all equal. Because everyone wears the same clothing. Men, women, it's the same thing. There's no fashion, there's no jewelry, there's nothing. There's no money, it's just the same white piece of clothing. You can be the richest man in the world and you're still going to wear the same thing as me. That's a legacy of the Hajj. So with that being said, I think this is a good place to end today's episode, where if I'm going to summarize, I guess, what we covered here, I think the main ideas and takeaways here is the simplicity and the legacy of the Hajj. And I think what I really wanted to convey, and I hope I did convey this effectively, was that we should really reflect on the simplicity and the legacy that the Hajj brings to us. And you know, in a world with all this social media, we often get sort of so lost in, in all these things that are occurring that I think it's really important that we just sort of look at the the simplicity that the Hajj brings to us and the legacy of what we're actually doing when we go on the Hajj not just when we actually go do on the Hajj when we actually go do the Hajj sorry and inshallah that we all get a chance to do the Hajj but also just sort of our connection with those who came before and those who will come after uh, as well and you know, hopefully, you know, again, inshallah, we do get a chance to, to go on that Hajj. And you know, inshallah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make it uh, easy that we're not faced with too many uh, sort of obstacles. And that if we do face obstacles, again, inshallah, that we're able to overcome them. So, again, with that being said, I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode uh, on the Hajj and reflecting on the Hajj. If you did enjoy today's episode, please do remember to leave a five star review on whatever podcast host. That you're listening to this from, and if you did enjoy today's episode, uh, please share it with others. I'm sure if you know you enjoyed it, others uh, would as well. And if you can also go follow me on Instagram, it's Muslims in Your Backyard. Uh, I'll be posting regular updates on my Instagram page, and I'm also starting uh, sort of a, a new, I guess you could say, Instagram exclusive sort of posting where I'm going to try to post on different masjids and mosques from around the world. I'm going to be focusing on sort of giving an introduction to the history uh, of different mosques and to just sort of show how mosques are built uh, in different parts of the world. You know, a lot of times, I think we often see mosques like they are in you know, Saudi Arabia, but, and I, I you know, will tell you this, that if you actually look around the world, you'll see that mosques actually have very different architectural designs, and some of them are very interesting and have some very interesting histories that go behind them, so I'll be posting that uh, all on my Instagram page. So do so, do go follow it if you if you want to uh, go uh, see that. Uh, but other than that, um, yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, as always, I appreciate the support and I appreciate you taking some time out of your day to listen to me. And inshallah and alafis, we'll meet again.